On today's show, Dylan Brooks' masterclass performance for Team Canada, helping propel them past Spain and FIBA World Cup action. Plus, Rafael Stone ranked the 18th best NBA executive using sabermetrics. Should he be higher or lower on that list? It's all coming up right here at Locked on Rockets. This is Mission Control, Houston. Ignition sequence start. Throw it up to Jalen Green. Shingun here in the short row. Oh, my, that's the no look. Jabari for three and the win. Yeah! Look at Tari Eason. Here he comes, Tari. No! T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. The Houston Rockets select Amen Thompson and Cam Whitmore. One thing I have never done is not made the playoffs, and so we want to take that step here as well. Six. Five, four, three, two, one. What's up and welcome to another edition of Locked on Rockets, the daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Gatlin, native Houstonian and credentialed media member. I'm also the host of Locked on NBA Mondays. Be sure to follow along on Twitter at JT Gatlin and the show, of course, at Locked on Rockets. Free and available wherever you listen to your podcast, including YouTube. And as always, thank you so much for making Locked on Rockets part of your day every single day, whether it's on the way to work, on your lunch break, in the gym. Thank you for making LOR part of your day every single day. Joining us now is your weekly co-host, none other than the Podfather himself, Rockets Wire editor and host of the Logger Line podcast, Ben Dubose. You can track down on Twitter at Ben Dubose here to discuss, recap, revel in the superiority of one Dylan Brooks, who I am dubbing Captain Canada after his insane performance helping propel Canada uh, past Spain, keeping them alive in the World Cup. Ben, this was... You know, when we we talk about Dylan Brooks, he's such a polarizing figure amongst Mm -hmm. Rockets fans, and I think we're getting a bit of a taste through FIBA action, through his play for Team Canada, of what is hopefully the best case outcome of some of his impact and how he's going to be able to help this young Rockets team. Yeah. Now, first off, we hope this ages well. Knock on wood, the Canada team plays Slovenia on Wednesday morning. So hopefully Dylan locks up Luca. And if he does, then you got to bring the Locked on Mavs guy on the podcast and ask him how Luca got clamped. So that's the hope. Knock on wood. Hopefully we're not jinxing it and Canada advances to the final four of the World Cup, which they easily should because it's an NBA heavy roster led by SGA, but also Dylan Brooks, Lou Dort. And I think that's a big part of the story for Dylan Brooks. We can talk about both the macro and the micro, certainly in the micro. Also the disrespect to Rockets legend Kelly Olenek. Come on. Oh, yeah. Come on, Ben. And Knicks legend RJ Barrett. There Um, we go. (laughs) Yeah. But look, I think you can look at it both in terms of the game to game and the tournament as a whole. In terms of the game-to-game, sure, he played brilliantly in that game against Spain, which was an elimination game. And I actually texted a couple of people within the Rockets saying, dude, are you watching this? It was absolutely amazing what he did, especially down the stretch, not just with making shots, but defensively as well. But the tournament as a whole, one thing that I've really enjoyed about Dylan is the fact that on a team in which after SGA... He is as accomplished as anybody else. In terms of NBA tiers, Canada has a bunch of nice players. But when you look at Dylan compared to, say, Lou Dort, Kelly Olenek, RJ Barrett, those types, it's not like any isn't a clearly different NBA tier from Dylan. SGA is the only one who is. And yet when you look at average shot attempts per game, Dylan is barely above six. That ranks sixth on Canada's roster, 
even though he's a starter, even though he plays a lot of minutes. And the reason I want to underscore that, it tells you, in my opinion, on some level that he gets it in terms of what his role should be on a team that is fully committed to winning. And that's important to underscore because a lot of the concerns about Dylan are about shot selection. And is he willing to embrace the three and D type role, or does he want to do more? And if there's no John Morant, if there's no established star in place, is he going to go to the Rockets and start chucking? I think this is an indication that he might not. He's playing within the flow of the offense. He's doing the little things. He's not going out of control with chucking or anything along those lines. I thought Paolo Alves, my co-host on the logger line, actually made a really good point when we were discussing Dylan on our show last week, that he might be the rare guy that a four-year contract is good for because it gives him some peace of mind. He's no longer playing with a chip on his shoulder to prove himself. He already has proven himself. That's why he's on an 80 plus million dollar deal over four years. And a lot of times NBA fans are accustomed to thinking that's a bad idea because there's less flexibility. But in the case of Dylan, maybe it allows him to just play. He feels respected. There's a reason the Rockets committed all that money to him. And maybe that makes it easier for him to sort of embrace the role the same way he's doing for Canada. Because for Canada... There's no real financial stakes to it. It's all about trying to win and take his country to a spot that it hasn't been before in terms of World Cup and Olympic success. It's strictly about wins and losses. There's no financial tie. So perhaps that translates a little bit to the NBA. Now that he's settled with his contract, he has a place that really wants him. They know they have a plan for him. So maybe this is the rare exception where he gets a bit more peace of mind and plays the way we've seen this summer. Because it's not just the great game he had against Spain, which is the top-ranked team in the world. Sure, he made some shots, but you can also point out, look, it's one game. In the game before, when Canada lost as a big favorite against Brazil, he had two points and was in foul trouble. So even though we can point to this brilliance in terms of, yeah, he stepped up his game against the biggest competition, I do think that's an important intangible, not just offensively, but defensively. To me, the highlight play wasn't even an off on an offensive play. I thought it was the turnover he forced late in the game where he used his body to sort of check a Spanish guard out of bounds. But when he did it, if you noticed, he put his hands behind his back so that the official could see that he was not reaching. And so even though there's probably a little bit of a nudge, you're probably not going to get that call if your technique, you know, if you're disciplined with your hands and it's pretty clear you're not trying to push overtly. And so I thought that was a very, you know, high IQ defensive play. It was a key turnover. And I believe the next possession Canada either tied or took the lead. But look, you can always say it's one game. Dylan called it the best of his career. And the game before wasn't very good. So in terms of the micro, sure, there's going to be give and take. There's going to be good games. There's going to be bad games. But in terms of the macro, I think when you look at it within or you look at it through the lens of the concerns with Dylan with shot selection, does he get it? This entire tournament run suggests that maybe he gets it a bit more than the national narrative would lead you to believe. I want to play devil's advocate here in just a moment about Dylan Brooks because he's, again, this is going to be one of the main topics rolling into the Houston Rockets season coming up here in just, we're, we're less than a month away from media day too. We are so close, guys. We are so close to Rockets action being back in full force. Coming up. I'm going to play devil's advocate about Dylan Brooks here in just a second, talking about how he impacts winning his fit with the Rockets and so much more. We're also going to get to Rafael Stone, ranked 18th best executive in the NBA using Saber metrics. We're going to get to all of that in just one moment. First, today's episode is brought to you by FanDuel. Get ready for the NFL season with incredible offers from FanDuel, America's number one sports book, because right now new customers can bet 
$5, just five bucks, and get 200 in bonus bets guaranteed. Plus, all customers who bet $5 will get $100 off NFL Sunday ticket from YouTube and YouTube TV. Now is the absolute best time to join FanDuel. The app is super easy to use, and you could be in on everything from point spreads to player props, over-unders, and so much more. Right now, you can take a look at the outright betting favorites for Super Bowl 58, the Kansas City Chiefs leading the way at plus 600, the Eagles at plus 800, the Bills at plus 900, and the Bengals and the 49ers rounding up the top five at plus 1,000 apiece. The Texans all the way down at plus 18,000 to win this year's Super Bowl. So visit FanDuel.com slash LockedOn and kick off the NFL season with an offer you won't want to miss. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. And continuing on here at Locked On Rockets. Now, I know I said I'd play devil's advocate. I want to do that in a second. But I will say, Ben, one other observation that I had is with Dylan Brooks in this game, he was playing through foul trouble too, which is the other important part, right? You talked about him with his hands behind his back, uh, you know, kind of illustrating the referee, hey, I'm not fouling. But... I think it was really important because Dylan Brooks is one of those players. He like the last like three years in the NBA, he's ranked like top 10 in foul rate. Like he fouls a lot as a player, but there are a lot of those top tier, like premier NBA defenders that do actually foul a lot, especially perimeter defenders like Dylan Brooks guys like that have to be willing to get a little physical, right? Push the envelope of what the referees will allow them to do. That's why, Year in, year out, you see Draymond Green get away with so much more stuff on the defensive end than almost any other player in the entire association yep. because referees, they they call his game differently, right? They let him yep. get away with more physicality than another player, whereas if, you know, Tari Eason walked out there and tried to be just as physical as Draymond on the defensive end, he'd be fouled out by yeah, halftime. We know how that ends. So by building up his reputation, by, by you know, pushing the envelope as much as he possibly can, at least on the defensive side of the ball, with those fouling, with, with fouling, with being physical, Dylan Brooks has kind of afforded himself that opportunity to be yeah. one of the more physical defenders in the I, NBA. And I know that doesn't exactly extend to FIBA, but I just wanted to highlight the foul or yeah. playing through foul trouble. Well, and I do think it underscores the idea that he can handle the moment mm-hmm. that he was able on that stage to dial it back. I think with some guys, you know, Pat Beverly is a good example. Whenever Pat would line up against Russell Westbrook back in his rockets days and their rivalry was at its peak, you could almost guarantee that Pat was going to pick up two fouls within five minutes in the first quarter. And it was going to limit him because he was trying so damn hard. He could not keep his energy in check for Dylan in the second half of that game. When the chips were down, and it's not just Spain being the top-ranked team in the world, they led by 5 to 10 points for the majority of that game. For Dylan to stay composed, to not get too aggressive, to not get um, tempted and baited into trying to go for too many steals, for trying to make the superhuman plays on offense or defense, it points to this idea that he can handle the moment and channel that energy in the right direction. I think that's low-key important. I think that's something that when we're talking about NBA players is really useful to projecting how they fit on a contender. Because when we talk about the Rockets young core, the one guy that I feel the best about when we look at the core six in terms of how they're going to translate four or five years down the road, at least from a floor scenario, is Jabari Smith Jr. Because we've seen consistently how he performs under the brightest of lights and how he handles the moment. And that's really big. It It may not be the difference in terms of good versus great, but it gives you a high floor because you know that guy isn't going to get rattled by the biggest stage. And so that's what I would say. Dylan, you know, being able to stay out of foul trouble and channel all of his relentless energy in a positive 
direction and use it to his advantage, that's one of those little things, even in a one or two game scenario, it suggests that he's going to be able to handle the moment fairly well once the Rockets get to meaningful games. Hopefully, right? I mean, that's at least a hope at, the, at this point. I do want to say, though, I know you made the point earlier about Dylan Brooks kind of accepting this role, right, with Team Canada, mm-hmm. and that that should at least, you know, hopefully be po- be a positive coming into this season with the Rockets and his role here in Houston. But I will say, I think the one element that the Rockets don't necessarily have that Team Canada does have is Team Canada clearly does have an alpha dog, right? They've got yep. Shea. And Memphis had jaw. And when Memphis had jaw, Dylan understood his role was behind jaw, right? And and his yeah. shot attempts on the year and year by year, they go up quite a bit. And we had uh, DeMichael Cole on from Lockdown Grizzlies. He talked about the fact that whenever jaw or Desmond Bain would go down, Taylor Jenkins asked Dylan Brooks to do more offensively because he is a guy that can put the ball on the floor, can create his own shot. He's a shot creator. He's not necessarily a shot maker is what DeMichael mm. had to say about Dylan Brooks. So, I do worry, right, that maybe I were maybe I'm not I'm not like crazy worried about it, but I do think that there's at least this nebulous situation where the Rockets don't have a clear-cut number one guy yet. That guy we hope yeah. is Jalen Green, or maybe yeah. Jabari develops into that guy this season, or maybe Fred takes more of a front row seat than we expect him to and be more of that tier one, tier two option, or you know, option one, option two for the Rockets this next season. But if the Rockets go into the year in 10, 15 games in the season, there's not a clear-cut number one guy, a clear-cut best player, then do yeah. we see that other version of Dylan Brooks start to creep out where he starts to try and do too much offensively, right? Yeah, that's a fair concern. My rebuttal would be when you look at the Canada team, it's not just Dylan versus SGA, but it's also when you look at Dylan versus Lou Dort, RJ Barrett, Kelly Olenek, the other NBA guys, he ranks not second or third he ranked sixth in shot attempts per game so i'm not i know it's not an apples to apples to a scenario in houston where there will be no established alpha but i do think there's some positive you can positives that you can draw that even if you take sga out of the mix he's still shooting less than many of his nba peers on the canadian roster and these are nba peers that are not any more accomplished for the most part than dylan is so i think you know there's certainly some hope that I'm projecting onto that, not saying it's an apples to apples because it's not. But if you want to look at it positively, to me, that's the way to look at it. It's not just, okay, Dylan, he's shooting less, but he has SGA in his roster. It's also Dylan versus those other NBA role players. And even within that comparison, it's still a little bit less. And you do see, you know, when you also look at his play for Team Canada, just I, I know we're, we were kind of reveling in the... <clears throat> pardon me, in the offensive production of this game. Again, he had tw- so he had 22 points on 8 of 12 shooting. He had some clutch buckets down the stretch. Um, he had the defense down the stretch, though. I-, I think this is, you know, the big takeaway here is even if Dylan isn't a guy who's providing you, say, anything offensively, mm-hmm. he's still a guy that's going to bring it on the defensive side of the basketball. Yes. And I think that's going to mean a lot for this Rockets team, especially last season when we saw... There were stretches, right, where, like, in, the in, in I think, the uh, the crunch time stats for the Rockets last year were actually pretty favorable. They were good when they actually got a game down to the wire yeah. within those final five minutes. They actually kind of rose to the occasion. The yeah. problem is it felt like last year so many players, their, their effort and their intensity on the defensive side was contingent on how involved they felt offensively or how good they were they were on any given night offensively if if – if Jalen was on fire offensively, you saw him way more locked in on the defensive end. Dylan is like the inverse of that. It doesn't matter how good or how bad he's playing offensively. He is still going to make defense his calling card. and He's still going to be locked in on that end regardless. 
Yeah, and I think that's important to setting an overall tone mm-hmm. because when you look at the roster the Rockets have going into training camp, when you combine Dylan with with Fred, with Jay Sean Tate, with Jabari Smith Jr. and Tari Eason, that's a lot of defensive intensity. That's a lot of high motors. And so that makes it a lot harder if you're one of the other guys to coast. Yeah, you can coast if three or four of the other five players on the court are doing the same thing. Because why are we going to talk about Jalen Green taking a playoff if his teammates are doing the same thing? At that point, it's systemic. On the other hand, if Jalen Green is the only guy not giving the effort, it's sort of like, you know, if you remember James Harden in 2014, when he had that season where he just went viral on Vine every other game because it was so comically ridiculous. And then he got shamed into better performance. And before you knew it, the next year was when James took the big step defensively and the Rockets as a team got to the Western Conference Finals in large part as a result of that. He sort of got bullied and shamed into getting better. And I think that's sort of what happens within the team's construct too. When you have better defenders overall and you have a higher volume of those high effort guys, then not only do you have the benefits from those guys individually, but it lifts the collective as well because it sets a better culture. Couldn't agree more. I mean, but also the the important takeaway from that is that bullying does, in fact, work. Um, when, when, Social media when ex- bullying, too. When executed properly, right? Um, TBD on whether or not bullying works with Astros players. We don't know how that works oh. at this point. Um, <laughs> shout out to Ben and his many interactions uh, amongst Astros Twitter. Coming up, want to get into... Rafael Stone being ranked 18th best executive in the NBA via Sabermetrics. We're going to get super nerdy here on the podcast coming up in just one moment. And final segment here at Locked on Rockets. Now, we're going to get super nerdy here for a minute because uh, I believe I'm saying his name right. Ben Rohrbach uh, over, at, right. Yeah, over at Yahoo Sports did this really interesting article. Uh, he called it the Danny Ainge system using sabermetrics to rate every NBA team's top executive. So a quick breakdown of how this works basically is each transaction is basically categorized into baseball terms based on an original formula that they came up with, which means a home run equates to bona fide all-star players. Uh, a third base hit equates to top flight performers. Second base hit is front end rotation players. A, fir- a base hit is other ner- noteworthy contributors. Um, and then he has uh, a couple more in here, lateral and inconclusive moves, uh, which is, oh my God, what does BV stand for? Walk. Walk, there we go. I should know that. This is why I don't do baseball, Ben. Mm. <laughs> and then I know that the K is strike, so we're good. So Base on balls, yeah, d- yeah, yeah. Diminished returns uh, on, on any you know category, whatever. Uh, and I thought this article was so interesting. I want to jump to... Uh, just he kind of did categories first. So he did just the blanket top five uh, executives for draft picks, then top five executives for trades and top five executives for free agent signings. And Rafael Stone actually landed in the top five for draft picks. He clocks in at number four on the draft mm-hmm. pick executive. So first is Tim Connolly with the Denver Nuggets, then Zach Kleiman from the Memphis Grizzlies. Masai Ujiri comes in at third. Uh, with the Denver Nuggets from 2010 to 2013, and then the Toronto Raptors since then. And then Rafael Stone clocking in at number four, his tenure exclusively with the Houston Rockets. And then actually coming in ahead of Sam Presti, surprisingly. Mm. I would not have thought that the Rockets' draft success these last few years would have, at least in this system, weighted yeah. Rafael Stone above Sam Presti, but it did at this point. So, yeah. Um, I'm, you know, first takeaway from this, Ben. Rafael Stone comes in at number 18, though. Um, are yeah. you surprised at that number? Like, do you think he would have been lower or higher? Just ballpark, like, eye test only going into this experiment. 
It feels about right because to give Rafael any higher of a grade than middle of the pack is going to require one of his high draft picks to truly break out into a star level player. Mm -hmm. We hope that happens, but look, let's be honest. We can talk about the fact that he inherited a bad situation and now the Rockets are clearly on the upswing. That's good, but they have not taken any strides as a team yet. And so until they do, I think you've got to have him in the middle of the pack. Now, certainly it's not been a catastrophic tenure by any means. He shouldn't be at the bottom of the league because, yeah, you could definitely do a worse job when you look at what he inherited. They are clearly in a better place today than they were in late 2020. So he's navigated some situations well. But in terms of giving him a higher grain than middle of the pack, at some point, you've got to win games and be it the guys he signed this summer, Fred Van Fleet, Dylan Brooks leading the way, or more likely some of those core six draft picks that he's accumulated the last three draft cycles, breaking out into not just you know a promising prospect, but to actually a star NBA player that contributes to winning. Until one of those guys actually does that, we hope more than one, then you have to have some degree of skepticism. And you know, my general view on Rafael is that that's okay. I think that if you bring in a GM to lead a rebuilding project, in general, you should let him see it through unless something is so catastrophic that you can just tell that this is headed in the wrong direction. And I don't think we're there in Houston. It's different than a coach. You know, even in rebuilding years, you can see if the culture isn't right, if you're not getting the development. And so that's why the Rockets decided to move on from Steven Silas. In the case of a GM, you do have a bit of a longer leash because if you go down this road of trying to rebuild through the draft and prospects, then you've got to give the guy some time to actually see how those draft picks pan out. So I think overall, it's fair middle of the pack. He's done a good job so far, but nothing yet that has contributed significantly to winning. And until that does, I think even Rafael himself would probably acknowledge that middle of the pack is fair. However, I do disagree with the lofty draft grade and the low trade grade. For example, I, I saw he had the James Harden trade from January 2021 as a strikeout. Yeah. And the same with Christian Wood. I strongly disagree with that. I think, you know, in terms of the James Harden trade, they've already got a key contributor in Tari Eason, who was one of the best rookies in the entire NBA last season. And now you've got four more years of unprotected assets from a Nets team that their their outlook is mixed at best. The Harden trade I, should at worst be a walk for like inconclusive because we just don't know yeah, enough about the results like of those you, picks. You can quibble, of course, over the Karis LeVert and Jared Allen portion of that trade and asset management. Did they get enough? That's absolutely fair, but that's not the primary incentive of the trade. The primary incentive of the trade was the draft capital from Brooklyn unprotected for seven years. And right now, to me, that looks pretty good. So calling that a strikeout, to me, that's pretty silly. And then the Christian Wood trade in 2022, Look at Christian Wood's value this summer to get ultimately a first-round pick in two seconds because they got the, the Dallas pick and then they moved back for the first-round pick that became Ty Ty Washington and then two second-round picks. That's pretty good value for what Christian Wood has not been able to fetch on the market this summer. So I think they did pretty well there. So I think calling those strikeouts is is a bit odd. And you could even argue the same with Daniel Tice because they offloaded and basically um, – didn't have to pay a premium to do so. So I would consider that more like a walk. They got off the contract. They'd have to pay a premium to offload. So I think some of the trade grades were a little harsh, but draft wise, look, you know, I, I'm sure some people will dislike me for saying this, but I think calling Jalen Green and Jabari Smith Jr. doubles right now 
is a bit aggressive in both of their cases. Look, the guys picked right behind Jalen, Evan Mobley and Scotty Barnes. I know the roles and situations are different, but those guys have been better than Jalen through two years. Let's be honest with Jabari Smith Jr. To this point, the guys picked right after him, Keegan Murray, Ben Matherin, Jaden Ivey. They've been better than him. Now, that's not me saying I believe it's going to stay that way. I do believe in Jalen and Jabari. I think they're going to get there. And I think now you have better infrastructure around them this year and a better coach in Ime Udoka, then you can bring out better versions of those guys. And we've already seen some positive signs from Jabari at Summer League, obviously. But to this point, I think it's a little aggressive to call Rafael Stone a top five drafter because we have not seen those high draft picks, certainly not Amon Thompson because he was just drafted, but then Jalen Green, Jabari Smith Jr., it's not like any of them was rookie of the year quality. They still have a ways to go. So I think the overall middle of the pack grade is there. However, how he got there, I disagree a little bit. I think top five is a bit too aggressive in terms of grading his draft record because while it could be, I think in a year or two, it's absolutely possible that you know, we look back and say, wow, that trio of Jalen, Jabari, and uh, Amon Thompson at the top of the draft is really good. But in terms of September 2023, where we are right now, I think that's a bit aggressive if we're grading his track record. But then the flip side, I think, you know, some of the trade grades with the Harden and Wood trades in particular are a bit harsh. So I would just say overall, it sort of comes out of wash. I do agree that giving Rafael a middle of the pack grade amongst NBA GMs is fair based on his track record to this point. However, in terms of the particulars, again, I think the draft is a little too rosy and I think the trade is a little too harsh. Yeah, coming in, some of the specifics on how they broke down. So each GM got broken down based on draft picks, trades, and free agent signings, which gave them their totals. Again, clocking in Rafael Stone at 18. Now, it's worth noting, it's 18 out of 25, not 18 out of 30, because for certain executives around the league, they just haven't been in a position long enough to evaluate them. And so uh, Ben did a, not not our Ben, the Ben who wrote this for Yahoo Sports, did a cutoff of a certain date. So I believe five different executives got left off. So it's 18 out of 25 GMs. Yeah, and, and by the way, we should also note that for Rafael, it's basically too early to tell on free agency because he had no financial space the first two years. And he finally did this offseason. He brought in Fred and Dylan. Hopefully that works out. But obviously they have yet to play a game in a Rockets jersey. So that's why we're talking a lot about the trade and draft portions of it. Because yeah. Rafael, in terms of free agency, Again, we're literally just two months removed from when he finally had a realistic opportunity to do something on that side. Yeah, and 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 uh, the the free agent this past free agency t- summer twenty twenty three did not get factored in this article whatsoever. So so those moves we can't yeah. quantify yet as far as yeah. So pretty much free agency, Rafael is basically a zero, and that's not his fault. It's just the Rockets haven't had any resources for what was evaluated in this article. Yeah, his OBP uh, for free agents <laughs> is uh, sitting at thirty three. Or sorry. Uh, Point three three three, so yeah. not great. Um, Shout out Rockets legend Daniel Tice. There we go, and Rockets who actually has looked good for Germany in uh, FIBA World Cup play, but and Rockets legend David Nwaba as well. Got to give him some credit uh, credit in there. But the the doubles for the dra- so just going back to the draft picks for a second, the doubles come in at Jalen Green, Alperin Shingun, and Jabari Smith Jr. Uh, the base hits KJ Martin and Tari Eason. I actually disagree with Tari Eason being just a base hit. I feel like he should yeah. be up there with the other two guys. Um, yeah, I, I mean, do too. Like to the, me, Shingun and Eason are the biggest clear wins for Rafael, yes. especially when you account for the draft slot. Yes, exactly. And I think that's where I, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you about the draft kind of grade being a little bit rosier than it maybe should be because you look at the picks like Jalen and Jabari and Amin, like those were like Jabari and Amin especially were kind of the consensus guys at their slots, right? Jalen, there was a bit more of the idea, okay, do you go Jalen? Do you go Evan Mobley? That was a bit more of a choice 
at number two for Rafael Stone to ultimately make. But I think the guys that he should ultimately get a ton of credit for are very clearly Alper and Shingun for trading, you know, the assets to acquire him to draft him middle of the first round, making the Tari Eason selection. And then definitely KJ Martin, who is about to, you know, got traded. Obviously, we can quibble over the, you know, the return package that the Rockets ultimately got for KJ Martin. Did they hold on to him too long? Should they should they have taken the first round pick that was arguably on the table back during the trade deadline that they that they had for him from other teams that were coming to inquire about his services? But those three way, guys specifically should absolutely give Rafael Stone a ton of credit for his draft record to this point. By the way, when, when we talk about his brief free agency, because again, this was evaluated before the 2023 class, we should acknowledge that plucking Jayshon Tate as an international free agent in the first offseason that Rafael had is potentially a hit. Now, it's very much to be determined because clearly this offseason, the Rockets prioritized Tate over KJ. That's why they offloaded KJ for the two second round picks from the Clippers. Hopefully that age as well. I do think Tate can help with the defensive culture we talked about earlier. But yeah, just in fairness to Rafael, you know, you can talk about guys like Tyson Nwaba that haven't worked out. But yeah, Jayshon Tate, we should give him some flowers because at a bare minimum, he's an incompetent rotation player. Hopefully now that he's healthy and has a coach that values those types of contributions, maybe he's more than that this season. Time will tell. But yeah, that's at least at least a single, I would say. Yeah, and I mean, and, and as far as the article goes, they actually ra- uh, ranked Jayshon Tate a double. So, Ooh, okay. um, you know, that that part is, you know, may- maybe a little rosy as well. But again, a double counts as front-end rotation players. And I do think, uh, you know, I, I, I said it the other day that I think Jayshon Tate's headed for a, a renaissance this season where a lot of Rockets fans are going to realize just how capable he can be on a team, you know, in a team construct that's actually trying to win games and not just this, you know, amorphous blob of 20 yeah. year olds who have no idea what an NBA system is supposed to look like. So I'm optimistic for Jay Sean Tate moving forward. As far as the names at the top of this list, um, the three executives who actually came out on top, uh, Danny Ainge clocks in at number one, which I guess we shouldn't be surprised at. Danny Ainge has been in the business for a very, very long time. Ton of, ton of success with the Boston Celtics. Uh, TBD on what he managed to do with the Utah Jazz, but he clocked in at number one on this list. Masai Ujiri came in at number two, and then Brian Wright with the San Antonio Spurs came in at number three. I feel like of those three names, Brian Wright is the one that makes the least sense, but mm. I guess he's done a decent bit with his job since getting it. I mean, I'm trying to see... Free agents, he was counted. Zach Collins, Jock Landale, base hits. He doesn't have any home run hits. I guess he just doesn't have any misses in his time as the lead executive for the Spurs. Um, Any gripes with those three names at the top of the list, Ben? Yeah, I think it's a bit aggressive on the Spurs and perhaps a little, uh, little too much showing deference to their history. I think sometimes with the Spurs, it's sort of difficult to evaluate because they do still have so much lineage, including Pop himself, to the championship years. But when you look at it through the prism of the current team and the rebuild in progress, yeah, I think that's a, a bit aggressive. And, you know, that's a franchise that really was set up through going back 20, 30 years, going all the way back to Tim Duncan and David Robinson in the draft, that was set up for a run of sustained success. And now there's very much, I think people give them the benefit of the doubt. And, you know, now they've gotten Wemby, so they've sort of fallen into it again. But I do think that sometimes there's a bit too rosy of an outlook put on the Spurs simply because, you know, people look in awe and justifiably so. I understand it at the five banners hanging in the rafters from because of their historic, because there's like historical precedent for the Spurs to be a good organization. Yeah. So I think 
that's one that, again, like I get it. It's one of those things. I also think the one I thought was a little soft was actually uh, Tim Conley, who's with Minnesota now, was with Denver all those years. I guess, you know, you can question a little bit the work he's done over the past year in Minnesota. But Denver, to me, is the model NBA franchise, not just because they won the championship, but when you look at the team, they have three star level, now different levels of stars. Nikola Jokic is a MVP candidate, an MVP frontrunner every single year. First ballot Hall of Famer. Like, there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr., those are three star level players, and yet they did not use any top assets to get those guys. Nikola Jokic being a second-round pick. Jamal Murray, I think, was seventh overall. Michael Porter Jr. was 14th overall when everyone was passing up on him because of the fear with his back injury. To get those level of Shout players... Shout out to Mizzou, right? Yeah, of course. There we go. Okay. To, to get those level of players without investing a high first-round pick, well, I mean... Again, these are lottery picks, but not a top five pick. So we get those little players without investing a top five pick or even going into free agency to draft all of those. That is peak asset management in the modern NBA. So I think that was a little bit soft. To me, Denver is a classic case study. The way the foundation of that team was put together, that is peak rebuilding in the NBA to get that level of impact internally without having a top five draft pick or max cap room in free agency. So I thought that was a little bit soft. That's the one that I think, and again, I guess it's sort of tricky because Tim Connolly isn't with the Nuggets anymore. So there's sort of an overlap there. But in terms of who actually put the foundation of that team together, I think having him at 10 feels a little bit soft. Yeah, there's like, it's interesting looking at Tim Connolly, the way that they weighted some of his stuff. I guess some of the strikes are just really... Uh, prohibitive as far as being fire, uh, further up on the list. Like Brian Wright clocking in at third had no strikes anywhere on like the weighting of his yeah. list. Whereas Tim Connolly has a bunch of home runs. Um, he has Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray has home runs, Aaron Gordon as a triple. Um, he just also has a lot of strikes in well, here, at least as far as the way that they. Yeah. And, and, and I guess you can downgrade him a little bit because of the Rudy Gobert trade, which has not aged well, but I don't really dock him too much for that because you know, that Minnesota team is a classic example of, you know, if you don't do that, what are you really doing? Like yeah. that was, you know, an upper class, just mediocrity treadmill situation, which with Anthony Edwards breaking out into a true superstar is just not good enough. Mm-hmm. And even if the Gobert trade doesn't work out, I understand the thinking at the time. To me, it was one where you sort of had to push your chips in for a guy who was open to being in your situation, which is not easy in a market like Minnesota, Pat Beverly took some shots at them on that front in recent days. So even if that's, I, I wouldn't call it quite a strikeout. You know, it's been underwhelming for sure relative to the, you know, the four first round pick and they gave up, I guess, the Walker Kessler asset in that deal as well. But I understand the thought process. And so to me, yeah, 10 is a little bit soft when you consider that that's the guy who put together the foundation of really what's the best NBA team right now and did it without even having max cap room or uh, a high first round pick, a super high first round pick at least. And didn't even get to experience the fruits of his labor winning a championship with them yeah. because he's straddled with the Minnesota Timberwolves currently. On that note, let us know in the YouTube comments, should Rafael Stone be ranked 
higher or lower than the 18th best executive out of 25, not out of 30, at least as far as this article is concerned. Give us your thoughts on Dylan Brooks and his uh, performance as Captain Canada with Team Canada in FIBA action. Of course, we'll be covered for the results of the Canada-Slovenia game and whether or not Dylan Brooks is able to clamp up Luka Doncic in their next uh, matchup should be a ton of fun. If ben, he does, you've got to get the Lockdown Mouse guy on here, man. Oh, 100%. We are going to gloat tremendously if that happens. Um, ben, you know the drill. Let everybody know where to track you down at. Yep. Uh, ben Dubose on Twitter slash X, the Rockets Wire on the same, and the Logger Line on the same. And, of course, hit up rocketswire.usatoday.com for all of your daily Houston Rockets news coverage. That's going to do it for another edition of Locked on Rockets. As always, thank you so much for checking out the show. If you haven't done so yet, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts or on YouTube. Just search Locked on Rockets. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. But as always, thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening. And we look forward to having you back right here at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball.